Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, we're asking, can America maintain its position as the world's greatest economic power? By many measures, the American economy is powering ahead. GDP is on track to grow at around 3% this year, and the unemployment rate is an impressively low 3.7%. It's an unmissable opportunity for President Trump to describe the economy as so good, perhaps the best, he said, in our country's history. But for others, the same figures present an economic puzzle. My guests today are the authors of a new book called, ambitiously, Capitalism in America, a History. Dr. Alan Greenspan was first appointed by President Reagan as chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve and presided in that role for nearly 20 years at the helm in an age of turbulence. Was he an optimistic believer in market efficiency, failing to pop bubbles in the late 1990s or mid-2000s, or was he, as one biographer recently put it, the man who knew? As chair of the Federal Reserve, he's well-versed in giving guarded comments. His every word could move markets, like his description of irrational exuberance, which sent markets south in 1996, well before the dot-com bubble finally burst in 2000. Dr Greenspan, welcome to The Economist Asks, and we hope you feel candid with us today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. His co-author is the very free-talking journalist, Adrian Waldridge, formerly our American bureau chief and Lexington and Schumpeter columnist, now our Badgett British political columnist. Adrian, thank you too for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Greenspan, you start the book by imagining the World Economic Forum, that grand gathering in Davos, in 1620. And all the countries of the world are jostling for dominance. America, however, doesn't feature. So how did it become the world's biggest economy? Well, that's the extraordinary story which we try to present in the book. In other words, that's where we started and we are where we are today, for good or ill, but the whole substance of the book is a conceptual approach to what forces were at play, which got us from there to here. And what are the forces that you think that drives America forward when we look at that grand sweep of history? Well, basically, what has characterized the United States uh, through most of our history uh, is that we were helped by the Constitution of the United States. Uh, it set property rights and various other relationships which created the optimum climate for economic growth. And uh, there's no question that were we to back off from that, that we'd start to become uh, an average economy. 
Adrian Waldridge, does, do you read it similarly? Well, absolutely. I think that the, the central argument of the book is that um, economic growth is driven by what Joseph Schumpeter called in 1942 creative destruction. It's the willingness to move from old established ways of doing things to new innovative ways of doing things. And we argue in the book that America has been unusual in its willingness to embrace creative destruction. Uh, what are the reasons why America has been so willing? I think partly because it's such a big country uh, and that it can, it can afford to move from the old to the new in ways in which small countries are much more, more, more nervous. It's partly because it's a new country. Uh, America was founded in roughly the same year that Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Most countries are old countries with old established ways of doing things. Um, America wasn't really. It was, it, it was created in the world of growth and in the world of business. Uh, and so it was dynamic in that sense. It had a uniquely entrepreneurial culture, a uniquely entrepreneurial uh, uh, approach to business. Lots of immigrants, lots of lots of um, room to move, lots of economic resources. So it's it's a very dynamic culture. But as Dr. Greenspan said, it was a dynamic culture with one fixed point, and that fixed point is the Constitution. The Constitution defines a set of rights. It divides power. It creates a sort of framework which uh, provides stability amongst all the dynamism. So it's this unique combination of dynamism and the stability, certainty provided by the Constitution, which I think explains a lot of America's greatness. Yes, Dr. Greenspan, what are you going to choose from this very rich period? And even that is, is quite a, a long era that Adrian has covered in that sentence. What are you going to choose then from this beyond the sort of foundational time as the decisive moments, put it bluntly, make, make America rich? Well, it's the post-Civil War period which we're talking about. Civil War was a devastating period for the United States and with its obvious consequences with slavery. Uh, and uh, what the post-Civil War period was, was an extraordinary period of economic growth basically characterized by the ability to take an industrial environment and reduce the amount of input you required to get the same output. Henry Bessemer in uh, the 1850s came up with a wholly new way of producing steel, which had been, and the steel industry became a dominant force in the second half of the 19th century in the United States, and in fact created Andrew Carnegie, who uh, ultimately put together the pieces of what became U.S. steel. But then as the years went on, and we ran into Henry Ford and uh, the development of motor vehicles for the average person, uh, this accelerated the whole development. And it's historically unprecedented in any other country in the world. The United States both had an extraordinary capacity to bring in immigrants from abroad with extreme entrepreneurial skills, but also to adapt ideas from the rest of the world and apply them at scale. And the sort of scale of something like Carnegie Steel is unparalleled in Britain. Britain is the biggest producer of steel in the 1850s. And then by 1900 is 
absolutely dwarfed by, I think Carnegie Steel on its own is producing more than the whole of the United Kingdom. So America really takes the lead in the world from Great Britain in, 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 in that 50-year span. And seeing as you mentioned, uh, both of you have, have touched on Andrew Carnegie, what about the robber barons and their reputation, amassing immense wealth, obviously building businesses which were world-beating, but their reputation, and particularly at a time when we look at, at the gaps in wealth and at the super-rich with perhaps more scepticism than we did, the, the, the robber barons have a lot to answer for. I mean, the robber barons are amassing huge fortunes. And it's often said in their defense that they may have amassed these great fortunes, but at least they gave some of the money away in philanthropy. And it's wonderful, these philanthropies they created. But I think the much more important thing that they did was to reduce enormously the cost of inputs into the economy. So if you're reducing the cost of steel uh, and you're reducing the cost of oil, you're actually ultimately making everybody much richer. Uh, and what they're, 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 they're reducing those costs because they're developing organizations, ways of running the steel industry, ways of running the oil industry, which, which are simply much, much, much more efficient. And they're driving their competitors out of business, not because they're, they're cheating, but because they're just better at doing what they're, they're doing. And there's a very interesting comparison, I think, between the, the robber barons of the 19th century and today's silicon giants. And it's an extraordinary comparison because the similarities between the two silicon groups between the Silicon Valley and the robber baron world are, are, are quite astonishing. You have huge companies being created very, very quickly. You have entrepreneurs basically masterminding the creation of these companies. And you have fundamental economic inputs in the 19th century steel and oil today information being rendered much, much cheaper for everybody. And I think that this points to two remarkable things about America, which helps to explain why America has become the great economic giant that it has. One is America is just really good at producing entrepreneurs. These are people who are capable of taking industries and revolutionizing them and have absolutely gigantic ambitions. And secondly, America is incredibly good at creating companies, startups that can, can, be, can become giants very, very quickly. Dr. Greenspan, where do we think that the sad story of slavery fits in this picture? How does it affect the engines of capitalism? Well, it's not the engines of capitalism, it's the Constitution. Uh, slavery is an abomination. I mean, you can have in the uh, basic statement of the Declaration of Independence, uh, all men are created equal. Well, that redefines who is a man and who is not. And I think that uh, uh, what uh, we've been dealing with and what slavery actually did was, uh, as if it had continued going, was essentially create an impossible situation, which meant the Civil War was inevitable. I've always argued that uh, it was the cotton gin, which was invented in 1793, which took the uh, cost of so-called upland cotton down very significantly. So when the issue arose with the cotton gin and production increased an extraordinary amount of so-called short staple cotton, we had uh, a very high demand for slavery. So what's happening here, yeah. Anne, is that slavery is in some ways becoming outmoded 
in in so far as it's ever mooded. It, it's becoming people like Jefferson and Washington, who were slave owners, are beginning to free their slaves. And also the British Empire, of course, abolishes slavery in 1833, I think. And so slavery is beginning to look backward looking. And then something remarkable happens, which is this technological innovation with the cotton gin makes slavery economically vital again. Mm. So you see slavery declining in the late 18th and early 19th century, then it begins to take off again and spread across the United States because this technological innovation makes it more economically useful, profitable. Now, uh, some of our listeners will be familiar with the kind of experience where you go and you see all of Shakespeare plays very truncated in in one short performance. So I'm going to have to move you two gentlemen along, perhaps through history a little bit faster than, than might seem comfortable. If I were to ask you, do our homework for us. Why did the Great Depression happen? What would you say? Well, I think it, it goes back to World War One. One of the things that occurred as a consequence, as you well know, is that uh, when the war was over, Britain and all other European countries tried to reset their currencies against the United States dollar, which existed pre-war, and as a result, there was a huge distortion in the whole structure of economic forces. And that is often discussed as the reason why uh, Hitler arose and why uh, all the extraordinary things that occurred to lead us essentially to World War II, which is really an extension of World War I, because World War I never resolved the problems that had existed that caused it. Adrian? Well, I mean, a hard question. But one of the oddest things about the Great Depression is that there are in some ways two depressions or two recessions. There's one at the beginning of the 1930s, and then America begins to get out of the the recession, partly because of the the, the New Deal in the mid-1930s. But then towards the end of the 1930s, it goes back into into recession. Unemployment starts going going back up. You get this serious crisis uh, of the economy yet again. In, in the late 1930s. And the only thing that really pulls America out of the Depression, I think, is, this, is the Second World War, which massively sti- stimulates demand. But perversely, this sounds like the, the answer to these problems is is war. I mean, it's almost like the kind of, you know, the sort of <laughs> Bertolt Brecht view of capitalism. It's driven by war and the war machines drive the wealth. I mean, why is that wrong? Well, basically because uh, what it guided was aircraft and ships. People cannot have bread on the table as a consequence of improvement in aircraft and ships. It's merely the mechanism and the awareness, for example, that you went to a so-called cost-plus system, that there's no better way to get the private sector to function than a cost-plus system, but I think that's going a bit too far. don't think it's in the spirit of what a free market economy is. I'm going to ask you both to step back perhaps and and look at that question about the depression and what we learn from it when we come to dealing with the financial crash of 2008. Dr. Greensong, what did you learn about that arc of history? Well, I I would say, first of all, uh, it's a bubble bursting. Bubbles are the result of human, I don't know if it's psychology or what it is, 
but there are flawed aspects to human nature, one of which it produces bubbles because of a degree of euphoria which irrationally evolves and eventually collapses. It looked, for example, that when the crash occurred in 2008, it was actually far more virulent in a, in a collapsing of the financial system than in 1929. I mean, in 1929, you still have a very, say, the coal money market still existed and uh, it had 20, 25% interest rates. But in 2008, the market disappeared. There were no bids. There were nobody willing to back up a number of the markets, and the system imploded very significantly. And it wasn't until we had the actual evidence that what happened there granted the nature of human beings, how they behave with uncertainty and the like. And this is the area, incidentally, in which behavioral, so-called behavioral economics has delved very deeply. In any event, you have to do two things to produce the, the 1929 and the 2008 crisis. One, you need a toxic asset. And the toxic asset in 1929 was stocks. And in the, uh, 2008, it was um, mortgages. Uh, but you also need, as a necessary condition, that these toxic assets uh, are also basically leveraged mm. on the, on, on the one thing that appeared in both 1929 and 2008 was a high degree of leverage. So I've concluded now, we now understand the way these things arise based on the two major examples so we've learned an enormous amount from these two examples. Yeah, we actually absolutely. can base a, a real theory of how to prevent future crises on two huge examples. There are a lot of data that fits directly into that context. Uh, it, it, when, when people say to you, Dr. Greensman, you presided over an enormous credit bubble, what was the central flaw in your thinking that you discern when you look back on that? Well, I had the impression that what, on the observations that I had made up to that date uh, was that uh, bankers and financiers generally would tend to look after their own self-interest in a manner adequate to create a rebalancing. But it was very clear, especially at the top of the 2000 boom, 2008 boom, that everyone was waiting for it to crash but as uh, the chairman of Citigroup said, so long as the music is playing, we have to dance. When it stops, we won't. But the reason they did that is if they didn't, quote, dance, close quote, they would have lost market share. So there's a very interesting set of relationships which basically go back to fundamental human nature and uh, have their... You go back to the South Sea bubble. They all have these various characteristics. And I think uh, 2008 actually 
was a major statistical input because we never had before seen financial markets, especially short-term financial markets, literally freeze up the way they did in 2008. Adrian just wants to come in. One of the things that struck me watching this from very much from the outside was simply the power of politics during this in the sense that both the Democrats and the Republicans for different reasons wanted to increase the number of Americans who had homes. The Democrats said, you know, let's have have lots of poor people getting homes and the Republicans, particularly George W. Bush says, let's have a home-owning democracy. That'll be good for, for, for Republican virtues. So you've got huge political pressure on people to, to, to borrow money, to, to get into the property market. Was that a big factor at, at this time through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the, the, the mortgage finance industry based in Washington? Indeed. I spent a good deal of my time both as chairman of the Fed and as a private citizen complaining that these two institutions uh, were government-subsidized producers of uh, toxic assets. There's a lot there that we could unpack about what's been learned and where blame might have lain in the past, but where do you think the next bubble or financial crisis is most likely to come from? Dr Greenspan, you, your ghosts of uh, irrational exuberance, do you sometimes feel them around you today? No, actually, I don't think this economy is uh, as buoyant as a number of people do. Uh, I measure it by the rate of growth and productivity, not by the employment rate, not by inflation as such, but fundamental is output per hour. Output per hour in the last eight or nine years has been at a subnormal rate of increase, as indeed the whole world has been. In, in Britain, I mean, Brexit is a wonderful example of what happens to a market economy when its rate of growth slows down beneath a certain threshold. And I think what engendered Brexit and what is engendering the emergence of Donald Trump in the United States are two major economies slowing significantly below their potential rate of growth. And for example, in the last... uh, six months or six years, depending how you want to look at it, our productivity growth rate has been under 1% a year. So is that in the UK. We both used to be 3% or thereabouts. And that is a huge difference in the type, the level of the economy. And you get people coming in, as indeed the Brazilian election is showing very much that similar type of pattern where Brazil was an extraordinarily potent economy and uh, it collapsed under very dubious political control. Can uh, I just throw this back to Adrian Wooldridge, who's covering Britain and uh, Brexit and the road to Brexit a lot? Do, do you entirely identify with that, that you can sort of make a direct correlation between the lower rates of productivity growth and populism. Absolutely. I think that basically what you have is an economy now where everybody's competing for a 
fairly fixed pie. And so that sets interest groups against each other instead of looking to, 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 to get uh, richer and better. They're, they're looking to get a bigger share of a fixed pie. And I think also there's a sort of a weird thing that's going on as well, which is that we have a combination of a very high degree of economic turbulence. There's a lot of change, a lot of churn, a lot of um, technological innovation, but there's no really serious overall productivity growth. So everybody will move, happily move house or move job if they're moving to a bigger house or a better job. Now they've been asked to move mm. to, a, to the same sort of house or the same sort of job, but they're getting all the churn with none of, none of the benefits. And I think that's a terrible mixture. So what would we learn from the history that, that you two have written together about populism? You discussed populism uh, and its economic environment in the late 19th century, what would we learn about contending with the populism in Donald Trump's America or other forms in Europe today? Yeah, I think we're moving towards what we call stagflation. That is, it's very difficult to have this huge fiscal deficit because remember, one of the real problems with respect to entitlements I'm going to be Mrs. Normal, Adrian, and yeah. say, just explain entitlements in this context for us, please, those of us who didn't study social, economics. Oh, Dr. Greenspan. In the international arena, it's called social benefits. It, it's, a, it's various pension funds set up by government as welfare programs to take care of various aspects of the population. In the United States, we have an old age and survivors fund, we have Medicare, we have Medicaid, and we have a variety of other things which individuals, by the very nature of being a citizen of the United States and having certain other characteristics, are entitled to government payments of a certain dimension. If they were fully funded, which they were in the beginning and were supposed to be, then they would not have that negative effect on the economy, but they're not. And the huge deficit, which is scheduled, if you listen to the Congressional Budget Office in the United States, the debt is scheduled to go up to tremendously high levels in the years immediately ahead. That, that think, sounds a bit miserable, Adrian. Do you, do you, well, I think you, America's got to do two things to deal with the populism problem. First of all, it's got to get its growth back. It's put its rate of, of, of productivity growth back up. And I think tackling the entitlement problem is absolutely fundamental to that because it's shifting money away from productive investment to less productive use. And we have to make sure that there's no future financial crisis. And I think there are ways of reducing the, the likelihood of financial crisis by forcing banks to keep more cash in reserves. More equity cash in, in reserves. Are you, are you equally convinced, uh, Dr. Greenspan, that, that we're not risking another financial crisis right now? As Adrian points out, if we were to go to, uh, for example, globally, the, the, the average rate of equity capital in commercial banks or financial intermediaries uh, is historically low, but far more important. Uh, we would solve all of the issues of contagious default, which is a necessary condition for the 2008 1929 type of crises. And if you have uh, an ability to prevent contagious default, and the one way you do it is to look and ask yourself, where in a free and market economy is there no significant uh, type of default? 
feeding on one another. And that is in the non, so-called non-financial sector of the economy where the capital stock, equity to assets, is 40%, some in many cases much larger than that. Commercial banks have 11 to 15%. And the chances of a contagious series of defaults in the first case where you have very large capital buffers is very low to non-existent, where it's very high and very troublesome. And one of the things that we put in the book is to explain how we can have a system partly reflecting the Greek, the Swedish experience and uh, what we see in the developed world generally, how to solve this problem by doing a simple thing sharply raising the capital requirements and what the data show us going all the way back to 1869 is that there is no relationship between the amount of capital you have relative to assets and return on equity that means that the people who argue that they will that going to this very substantial change would induce a major problem are just mistaken. The data do not show that. And the reason is that the rate of return on equity capital is a built-in issue of human time preference. And that does not vary and would not vary irrespective of how much capital we require financial intermediaries. See, this is essentially an extremely optimistic book about American capitalism, because there are some people who say that America will just cease to be an exceptional nation, that, it, that its rate of growth will slow down as, because it's an advanced economy. And there are, there are other people who say that it's the nature of modern technology, that it just doesn't generate the sort of growth that we've seen in the past. We don't think that's the case. We think there's an extraordinary technological revolution going on. There's an extraordinary power in the American economy to generate really high levels of growth. But it's it's been slowing down partly because of a poorly run financial system, which generated a, a crisis of important proportions in 2008, and partly because of a very badly run entitlement system, which means America is spending more on entitlements really than its funding. So that, that fuels the deficit. But if you could solve those two policy problems, the underlying economy, uh, the economy that you see in these great companies like Google uh, and Amazon and the rest of it is a very powerful one. So America could reclaim its, um, its, its dynamism. And that's very important because do we want the 21st century to be defined by an authoritarian society like China or a liberal society like the United States? So a lot depends on solving these, these policy problems. I'm pleased you brought that up, Adrian. As we come to a close, I must uh, throw to both of you the question of whether there can be more than one winner, really, as, as we look forward. Is China well, going to challenge this optimistic reading that you seem to both share uh, what's and all about the American economy? Well, if you go back in Chinese history, uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, essentially reversed Mao Zedong's uh, basic communist system, which existed after World War II. And we had a whole series progressively of increasingly more liberal uh, governments 
was in China. And uh, I remember very distinctly, I had to work with uh, uh, Jiang Zemin and uh, Zhu Ranji in the 1990s. And uh, their basic disclosed view, one being the president, the other being the prime minister, their view is how do we make Chinese economy to function like the American? Now, with uh, Xi in power now, uh, perhaps semi-permanently, <laughs> this, this, this is not uh, the, the, the vision that Deng Xiaoping had. But I would say if it weren't for this little, um, this major problem, China would be a very successful um, a market economy as it was developing. And I always called it the, the, the most capitalist in action for a number of years until uh, uh, it ran into the last uh, three or four uh, regimes. And I frankly, I wasn't in government at the time, obviously. And I don't know what happened. And you're not going to find out what's happening within the Politburo unless you're sitting there. Oh, I, absolutely. I think that that's right. But I, th- I, I do think that I trust America to support the, the values of liberal democracy around the world. It has done for the last century. So they're really, if we can improve the rate of American productivity growth and ensure that the American economy is as dynamic in this century as it was in the last century, that's not just good for America, it's good for the rest of the world because ultimately America has been the champion of liberal democracy. Dr. Alan Greenspan and Adrian Wooldridge, thank you both very much. We are on email here, radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. If you'd like to feed in your thoughts on America as a global economic power and what lies beyond. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.